Room. We are your hosts Amber and Piali and we are really excited for today's episode where I would like to welcome Logan Parker. Hello Logan. Hey, thanks for thank having you. me on. Well, I was just going to say thank you so much for making the time to come on our show. Uh, so I'm really excited about this topic, but I'm going to allow Amber to introduce more about it. Just can't wait to speak to you more today. Awesome. Likewise. So good to be here with you today, Logan and Piali. Today's topic is a really interesting one. I think a lot of listeners will be really curious to hear more about this. And as far as what the topic is, I think we can maybe classify it generically as alternative ways of having relationships as sort of a broad umbrella. So we're going to talk about a couple of different concepts, polyamory, relationship anarchy, ethically non-monogamous Um, So those are some of the things we're going to dive into today. And I think really the thing that ties them all together is it's a way of approaching how we connect and relate to other people and what would be considered a non-traditional manner. So to start with, Logan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Uh, Yeah. So, um, man, that's a good question. How does succinctly sum up? I uh, I'm a semi-retired filmmaker. I was a professional dancer for a number of years, a medical school dropout, currently working in tech in administrative operations. That those are those are the main highlights. You, of course, have such an interesting life. And you and I met recently and started talking, and you were telling me a little bit more about your lifestyle, and you had referenced the background behind how and why you chose to live a different lifestyle. And you had recommended a book to me called Sex at Dawn, which we'll be talking a little bit about the concepts of that book on today's episode. And then there's another book I read recently, a memoir called Open, that has a really good personal story of what it's like to be in open relationships. So that's really how this topic came to me that I got very interested in learning more about it. So let's start with talking about the concept behind monogamy and where it comes from. Logan, do you mind giving a little bit of background about your understanding of how our society came to be to a monogamous uh, state being the norm? Yeah. And, you know, this is, um, this is a sort of topic that when I casually bring it up, like around the dinner table with friends or family, um, either a fight breaks out or everyone like, you know, <laughs> feels that they're seen for the first time. So um, buckle up listeners. And, you know, obviously not everyone's going to feel this way, but um, my view is well summed up in Sex at Dawn, which is why I recommended it to you. Essentially, you know, anthropology seems to indicate that, humans have largely been historically like through the hunter-gatherer phase early on and in, in uh you know earlier versions of society um relationships were much more fluid family boundaries were fluid people were affectionate romantic with each other as desired they would raise children more as a community groups of people would travel together work together live together the concept of what a family is was broader. Um, you know, they may not have used, might not have used the term family, but similar to what we would think of as like a larger extended family, except with sexual activity. And, and, you know, people often didn't know, um, whose children were whose. Now, when, um, 
when humans began settling and tilling the land and tapping into agriculture, they found this problem of needing to to pass it on to the next generation. Because when you're when you're traveling across the landscape and you're picking berries or you know hunting beasts or whatever. It, you don't need to claim ownership over the land, but if you are spending thirty or forty years cultivating and you know uh, fertilizing and, and getting your plot worked out, there's this desire to hang on to it and to um, to make sure that it's yours to pass it on to the next generation. And in my mind, a lot of this is is very greed based. It's understandable, you know. We we want to retain our investment, as it were, but it's um, it comes from a position of ownership. Now, my understanding is essentially the convention of marriage as we know it began to emerge about the time that we pivoted to an agrarian society, i.e. as the need came up to identify who owns the land, they needed to determine whose children were whose because uh, who am I going to pass it on to? Which children are mine? Suddenly, it becomes very male-centered and you know, unfortunately, there's there's this strong hierarchy of, okay, we're going to pass it to the firstborn son. Well, what, what? how does the woman fit into this? Well, we can't let her sleep with anyone else because then it becomes very difficult to track, um, you know, what the lineage is of, of, you know, what's the chain of title of this child and the, and the property that will get passed on. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, it's not purely greed because it is focused on this kind of generational uh, transmission, which is interesting as well. But so yeah, that's about the time in the historical record when marriage and monogamy become the norm and when they begin to get pressed. Um, depending on your views of you know, ancient texts such as the Old Testament, you can even see this within um, you know, the, the Torah text where there's this pivot from a, a, a more of a polygamy type of thing, which is also inherently has its own problems, but to, to the monogamy as... Um, as they begin to settle the land and things as well, uh, which is as a complete aside, it's always fascinating to me when people say, well, I, I support the biblical definition of marriage. I'm like, well, which one is, is it, is it the one when, you know, like if you're, if your husband dies, you, you now own his wife. Is, is, is that the version, <laughs> you know, or, or is it the one where you can have sex with like your servant and that's okay. Um, you know, so what, what are the servants today? Like how many servants do you have? And uh, by the way, do you believe in servants and slaves? Cause that's also in the, you know, like, it becomes very interesting to have that type of conversation with, um, you know, with people that may not be as familiar with their own text as they, uh, as perhaps they should be. That's a great background. And to tie this back to modern times, you know, when I was reading the book, these are some of the points that they make. And I suggest to the listeners to go out and check out this book as well. Um, so some of the things that they talk about is that, and this, this is something that I have been experiencing. I listen to a lot of dating and relationship podcasts and just about how people connect. And I feel like there's this, this situation going on, which I call the gender wars. And it's essentially this almost like battle that men and women are locked into where there's this narrative that all women are out there just to trap a man and that there's conflicting agendas when it comes to reproduction, that men just want to have no strings attached sex and women want to trap men into a relationship. And that that kind of dynamic actually makes each other miserable. And, you know, I think that a lot of these, these points are things that I see, that I hear about, you know, I read about that 
that don't really make sense and that there's this argument that monogamy is our natural state, but every human society has adultery. So if it's something that's our natural state, and this is, you know, kind of one of the points they make in the book is why is it so hard for so many people? And yes, there are people that can have happy, long lasting monogamous relationships, but there's a very high divorce rate. There's a very high rate of cheating happening. And that's a lot of, you know, the book goes back into time and, you know, a lot of the concepts you're talking about in egalitarian societies, and the other thing I like that they really tie it back to actual um, biology, you know, the only uh, primate that mates for life that does pair bonding is gibbons, which we share very minimal DNA with, while with chimps and bonobos, which we're very closely related to, are polyamorous societies. So, I mean, I'm, I'm with you 100%. And I, I think it's interesting that another point, not to spend our whole time talking about, you know, this one book, though it's a great book. And it's funny because, you know, people say, well, sex at dawn, I don't know, that sounds tawdry and it, it can best be described as like an anthropology textbook. It's it's not a sexy book at all. In fact, if the if the book has the name sex in the title, you almost know for sure that it's not sexy. The the rare number of instances where we've had like matriarchal societies or you know the types of relationship anarchy at play, there's been historically less violence within those communities, within the community as well as with um, external communities. To, to me, that says so much like the patriarchal hierarchy that we are, you know, experiencing now inflicted with <laughs> um, damages men as much as it damages women. And it's interesting because I'll have conversations with other men who are like, you know, they'll use derogatory terms like, you know, call me names. And they're like, man, you know, why can't you just man up? Like, why are you you know, you're such a blankety blank? You know, like, why, why do you consider yourself a feminist? Like, be a man, man up. And I'm like, you know, life is better when women have an equal footing. And in fact, what most men don't want to hear is that. It's, granted, it is a smaller sample size, but it appears that actually life is better when women have a higher footing than men because women tend to handle structural power better than men. They tend to be less aggressive. They tend to, I mean, again, gender stereotypes, but we also see that has been the case. Uh, ancient Celts had had many matriarchal societies and, and queendoms that were, um, you know, not without trauma or a conflict. But uh, when I read about the way some of those societies were structured, I'm like, man, that that beats a lot of what we got going on today. So I think that that book does a really great job of making the case that monogamy is not the natural conclusion of human relationships, just like, you know, another concept I'm really interested in is that civilization is not the natural course of human society overall. And they I like how they tie a lot of it back to actual, you know, biology and things like that. But one of the things they don't really do in the book is they don't really say what's the solution. So they make a really good case mm. of saying that this is like not a natural state, but then they, they kind of stop there. So what I'm really interested, Logan, is if you're willing to share your personal story. So we've talked about, you know, kind of how you came to this realization, but how did you personally, if you're willing to share, get into the lifestyle? Yeah, so I... um I consider myself polyamorous. Um, other terms that often are used are ethical non-monogamy. And that's, you know, if you talk to people who identify as either of those terms, they'll often have an opinion as to what those terms mean. I choose polyamory because it accents um, the the positive versus ethical non-monogamy is inherently uh, defined around what it isn't, i.e. it's not monogamy. Um, I 
personally feel that there are kind of two main reasons why I identify as poly. Um, the the simpler one to discuss is essentially what we've been talking about. Just ideologically, I think it's healthier. Uh, but my nesting partner and I, we have a lifelong commitment that's that's beautiful, it's strong, but I don't own her. I don't own her sexuality. She doesn't own mine. She's free in her relationship. She shines. Um, I have wonderful relationships in my life. We take different courses, but we still come back to each other and we are, um, we're able to support each other. We're, we're able to, to love each other and, and be there for each other without being worried about meeting 100% of each other's needs, which, you know, obviously segues into the larger conversation of, well, what's the difference between friendship and polyamory, you know, because many uh, of the relationships, most of the relationships, in fact, with people who, you know, I kind of enter into with a, a poly worldview are either platonic or very close to platonic. Um, it's, it's not just a, uh, you know, fuck fest. If you were, is this a, is this a PG podcast? I don't know what, what we're rated. It's no, you can say that. Uh, okay. But you know, the other reason that's a little bit harder to describe, and I wouldn't say that all people who identify as poly have this reason is I, I feel like I'm poly because of my orientation. I, I remember when I was four or five, um, looking at my parents who have a beautiful, wonderful, healthy relationship and um, seeing that and thinking like, like feeling dread and panic, like how, how could I, like, I have to pick one person and that's my only person for the rest of my life. Like how, how am I going to find this perfect person? And I had a lot of anxiety when dating, um, you know, like literally hundreds of people, like I dated hard before I got married <laughs> Because, you know, I was like, I, I got to find like this full, you know, the tightest compatibility possible because I only get one shot. And I, you know, because I wanted to be committed. I didn't want to cheat. I didn't want to, you know, like I, I saw the divorce rates and everything else. And I saw families struggling through a lot of these separations. And I'm like, either I'm going to not get married and, and just stay single and um, avoid all of this difficulty, or I'm going to have to find like the perfect person, <laughs> which obviously doesn't exist. It's an unrealistic expectation. And it's an expectation that is reinforced through media and through stories. It's very, you know, I, I love a lot of the romantic stories that are out there, but it, it so often is so strongly mononormative that it's, you know, it's like uh, all you need to be happy is to find your one and only and then everything else will work out. And uh, the data does not support that. Now, does it mean that I'm inherently dissatisfied with my partner? Absolutely not. She's absolutely my person. We're the best of friends. We have a very exciting and wonderful and tender romantic and sexual relationship. We enjoy a lot of activities together. We love raising the children together. We, you know, have been in business together many times. We've done all sorts of uh, things in many spheres and we absolutely love, you know, our, one of our founding principles is we'd never want to jeopardize our relationship. At the same time, you know, she has a steady boyfriend that she spends the night with uh, at least once a week and, you know, she'll meet someone and be like, Hey, I met this guy. Like he's incredibly hot. I, you know, I, I want to go out with him. Can you cover for me? And I'm like, yeah, I'll put the kids to bed. And, you know, I mean, we, you know, we work it out. I wingman for her. She wingmans for me. You know, we really enjoy roller skating. And, uh, you know, this woman came over and just, she sat down next to me like five times and kept trying to strike up a conversation. And, and I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And, um, my partner was like, you know, you really need to go for it and you need to like, she's, she's showing you every indication. And so she like helps set up situations to try to like, you know, put, I mean, but it's, it's wholesome from a certain point of view and from a different point of view, it's totally depraved, but uh, you know, it's, 
it's wonderful because we share the fact that we're still human, you know, like our sexuality, our interest in other people didn't die when we put a ring on our finger. So for me, a lot of the ethical part of it is not so much, I mean, you know, she and I have worked out our dynamic and we're comfortable and we're secure and we support each other. For me, the biggest thing is making sure that people on the other end of these dating relationships fully understand what's happening, (laughs) you know, in dating profiles, the very top line, or at least the second line is, you know, something about I'm, I'm poly, I'm in a, uh, an open relationship with, you know, like a healthy and open relationship just to make, and one of the first conversations I have when I, um, begin chatting with someone is like, Hey, I just want you to understand what's going on. Like, if this is weird to you, or if you're not interested, like now's the time. And sometimes people really respectfully say, you know, I'm looking for my person. I'm looking for my one and only, but maybe we can grab, you know, let's grab lunch or we can go for a walk or something and I'll make a good friend out of it. And it's an interesting dynamic in that, you know, I've, I've literally met people at like swinger slash sex clubs who I'd never touched, who we've become good, like music sharing buddies with. <laughs> and, and I've met people, um, you know, like I said, at roller skating who have become, you know, like ongoing friends with benefits. <laughs> like it's, you, you never know where something's going to go. And I think that keeping that open um, leads to some really healthy, wonderful interactions that are un, they're unencumbered by our traditional expectations. Um, so one of the things that I think is really interesting is that there isn't just one way to have a non-traditional relationship. So there's all kinds of different ways in different situations and different scenarios. And you absolutely, just, yeah, you've just described a few, you know, there can be a couple that maybe they only date together and they bring mm-hmm. other people or other couples into the relationship. And then there can be um, couples that date separately, like you're, like you're doing, um, you know, there's really isn't just one um, one way, which is something that I think is really interesting. And I think another thing you, you touched on is I think when a lot of people aren't um, educated about this topic, they think that this lifestyle is just an excuse to cheat. And I think as you're saying, it's really it's really not. And so I'm curious, can you explain, you know, how did you and your partner have this initial conversation and how did you get into this lifestyle? And then another question I have is, um, I'm sure everybody wants to know is how do you deal with jealousy? Let me start with the second question. I, and I don't have a great answer for that, but that's just a, a more common question. And I think, you know, it's it's an important question to ask as many people as possible who have a non-traditional, you know, like open type of relationship because everyone's going to have a different answer. But I generally am not a very jealous person personally. There, There's a topic, I didn't know this word until a couple of years ago, but compersion um, is, I, I should probably Google it right now. Audiences can, can, uh, can look it up, but it's effectively feeling joy at someone else's satisfaction, knowing that someone you care about is happy and receiving some sort of pleasure or goodness. It's in my mind, a pretty simple topic that everyone experiences, but we're very used to it in a like platonic friendship or family type of space, but we're not used to it in a romantic space. And I think it's just because of exposure. Like I said, I I grew up, like I've always felt this kind of, I didn't know the term polyamory when I was a child, but I always have felt this type of idea. And I remember, you know, like I would date someone and then, uh, you know, she would mention like, oh, you know, like I have a crush on this person. And I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, that, like being excited and, and, and um, happy that she had this additional energy, but there were also times where, you know, a, a girlfriend in, in middle school, I mean, it was all very, you know, it's like we barely held hands, but she, 
went behind my back and like, you know, was hanging out with this other guy. And then it was a secret thing. And then I felt really jealous because I was insecure. So for me, I think that jealousy um, comes from a place of security or, or lack of security. If you feel that you know where the relationship stands and you understand where your partner is, I'm not going to say it's a non-issue, but you know, sometimes it's a neutral, but more often it's, it's a joyous thing. It's like, Hey, wow, you've found, um, you know, you found a new relationship. You found someone that's exciting to you. You've found someone that um, strikes a chord with you that brings out something new in you. It, it's a beautiful thing. It's really exciting. On the contrary, if, if <laughs> it feels like there's something that's being hidden or something that may be threatening, that's probably the closest thing to jealousy. I feel, I, I don't think that those are exactly the same feelings, but I, I wonder what, you know, people who are inherently very jealous, how much of it comes down to just fear and uh, and uh, rational fear of being abandoned or, or fear of being lied to, et cetera. Yeah. So it sounds like you have to have a really secure partnership would be the best situation before opening up your relationship. So yeah, yeah. Just go, going back then to my first question is, you know, at what point in your marriage or your relationship with your partner did you decide to make this change and how did, who brought it up? Like, how did that conversation go? You know, I, I know that I brought it up. I don't remember the first time. Well, and, and th this may get a little explicit. This, this is, you know, this will have the MA rating on it. If you, if you have the podcast code, we were, I mean, we'd been together for like 10 or 12 years and she was like, you know, I, I've had this fantasy for a long time that I've never told you about that I feel really ashamed of where, um, like basically I, I'm, it's, she, she was described it as a reverse harem type of thing where, you know, there are like several guys and she's just kind of taking her turn, jumping from one to the next and everyone's, you know, giving her affection and paying attention to her. And I'm like, that sounds amazing. She's like, you don't think I'm a whore. You don't think I'm a slut. And I was like, no, like, let's, let's set it up. And she's like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, well, why not? <laughs> you know, like if it excites you and she's like, but isn't it, you know, like, that's terrible. Like, that's a bad thing. I'm like, what's bad about it? Like, I'm sure a lot of guys would be into that. And I would love to see you in that state. And obviously you're into the idea. And it took her a while to kind of get over the good girl syndrome of it. And like, accept that, like, this is something that I actually want. And so we started kind of in that space of trying to just like literally, I, I was like talking to other guys, like, "Hey, who want to set this up with?" And uh, the irony is, it never happened. She she never felt comfortable with it. But um, we experimented a little for a while with the for a couple of years with the like swinger space, where like as you mentioned, it's more of like couple to couple. Um, there's a little bit more structure to that. We found that it's not a dynamic that really landed well with us, and we didn't really feel that there were our people or that the 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 values and the interests really aligned in ways that made us feel entirely comfortable. Not to say that all swingers are that way, but it's just in general, it wasn't really our our community. But and then you know we got to the point where we said, well, should we try dating separately? You know, should we should we see what happens? And um, we were both concerned. We had we had heard a lot of stories about people that had opened their relationship and the relationship had died off. And the common thread between most of those, like I would say 90%, was that they were struggling, they were fighting a lot, they were unhappy, they were feeling unfulfilled. There's, you know, sex life was 
poor, their relationship was unfulfilling. And so they were looking for ways to supplement it and kind of, you know, add a scaffolding to it. I don't feel that we were coming at it from that point of view. I think it was, we were coming at it from a place of, you know, what, what can we do to further our relationship? What can we further our satisfaction? Um, what can we do to, to, um, you know, find greater joy in our lives? How can we level up? And I think that distinction has made a big difference. Now, I also don't mean to say that, you know, if someone's in a bad relationship, that's not working out for them and opening up is a transition that leads to them separating with that person. I don't think that that's the end of the world, <laughs> you know? I mean, cause a lot of people be like, oh, it led to divorce, which is terrible. It's like, well, like literally half of the United States, you know, like roughly half of marriages, maybe it's higher now end in divorce. So might as well do it meeting people that you like and, you know, doing something that's positive for you rather than just hating each other and then finding another one person that you end up making each other miserable with, you know, as with all things, I don't think you can have a healthy relationship if you don't with another person, if you don't have a healthy relationship with yourself. And so the degree to which, you know, my emotional health and her emotional health has, has been thriving. I'd say those are directly correlated to the success of, of how our, our open relationship has been. And you guys have been together for 20 years. Is that right? We we met about 20 years ago and we got married a couple of years after that. And you have several children, right? We, we, we have a, yes, we have some young ones. They're a handful, but they're great. I, one of the things I was wondering is how do you, do your kids know about this lifestyle or how do you balance that, you know, not want to overshare or tell your kids things that are inappropriate, but you also mm-hmm. want them to have the right like mindset. You don't want them to be stuck in like a traditionalist mindset. You know, we, this is something that we've been figuring out and uh, we, we talk about this topic with other friends who have non-traditional uh, relationship dynamics. And I think everyone has picked a slightly different approach, but our kids are young enough that, you know, the older ones were, we're having sex talks, but we're, you know, it's, it's pretty generic. We're not getting into um, deep specifics. Um, they know that we have friends who are, you know, outside of our marriage, obviously it's a normal thing. And sometimes, you know, mom goes out with so-and-so <laughs> to, you know, to, to grab dinner or to go to a yoga class or to, you know, do something fun. Um, they don't need to know all the details, but we, we think it's important to normalize the fact that, you know, mom and dad don't just exist in the home and they don't just exist for the children and they don't just exist for each other, but we have lives and interests and we thrive by exploring those and by, um, you know, supporting each other as we, as we find new endeavors. The, uh, I think the biggest thing is, like I mentioned, the societal mononormativity is so deeply ingrained. You know, I mean, you've probably seen the same memes that I have on Twitter and Instagram, but, you know, you'll, you'll have some, some person who is really upset about, you know, like a, a gay or lesbian marriage and, and thinks it's totally inappropriate that they're talking to elementary school kids about the fact that gays exist. And then at the same, in the same breath, they'll turn to like a seven-year-old and be like, do you have a boyfriend? <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa, whoa, you're the one sexualizing that seven-year-old. You're the one talking, you know, you're the one shoving relationship models on that child. So, you know, as, as it comes up, as the kids show interest, 
we we talk about it and you know we say well yeah that was a good movie do you think that you know finding your prince charming is a surefire way to be happy and of course the girls say no no you know because we're we're raising them to be critical thinkers as well as we can but we we don't expect our children to have the same type of relationship dynamics that we do we don't know what they'll pick but we want to make sure that they're open minded and that just doesn't you know extend to what we're doing but um you know i mean i'm i'm a fairly straight type of person but you know obviously i'm taking every opportunity to help our children understand you know like hey there there are a lot of wonderful relationships where both partners are the same or you know some people are interested in both and that's fine too and they have questions about it and we talk about it i think that the general openness to the idea that you know if you you're you're allowed to seek after people that you're attracted to you're allowed to find joy in that just be safe be honest be ethical be communicative those are those are the principles that we communicate to our kids. Um, you know, a lot of consent talks and things like that. On a, you know, it's like when you're talking with a six year old, and you know, but you find ways to work in the no means no, and the, you know, like hey, you know, the, the way you hugged me just then was was pretty painful, and I, you know, I'm I'm gonna ask you to not do that again. And they say, well, you know, I I can always hug dad. I'm like, no, not that way. And if I say that I need some space, I need some space. I'm like, okay, okay. And helping them talk through, you know, their own concerns with their friends. Um, a lot of it's, I mean, just relationships are relationships. And, uh, you know, obviously if there's a romantic or sexual dynamic to it, it complicates things to a different level and can become, you know, it's very heightened, whether in terms of joy and excitement or trauma, um, when things go really well or really poorly. But I think the principles are the same, whether it's just someone on the playground that they're, you know, having a conflict with, or they're um, ex- trying to figure out what their friendship means versus later when they're in their 20s and they're, you know, they meet someone at a bar and they're trying to figure out if it's someone they're truly interested in. Logan, I have so many questions for you. I'm just trying to decide which ones okay. <laughs> I should ask first and in what order. Okay, so first question, going to go a little bit deep. Are you in love with your wife? Yeah, 100%. Have you fallen in love with somebody else that you have met during your polyamorous relationship? 100%. And how do you deal with that? Because for me, monogamy is, for me personally, it's that thought of somebody else being with the person that you are in love with. And how is that possible to be able to accept that and be okay with it? So then there's the added layer of, okay, you are now in a polyamorous relationship. Now you have free reign to go and meet who you want. What if you meet somebody that's more uh, that person that you would want as your nesting partner Mm -hmm. than me? What happens then? And so you've been in love with somebody else. Can you can you talk to us about that? Can I jump in really quick before you answer that at a personal level? Uh, Just uh, I know that the question is directed at you, but I I wanted to mention really quick another concept, relationship anarchy, that I wanted to bring up because it addresses this exact situation. And this was uh, the Relationship Anarchy Manifesto was written by a guy named Andy Norgren. I think he's um, Swedish, possibly. Do you know? Yeah. Anyway, so basically the relationship anarchy is just that there is really no one way to have 
um, a relationship and they have several um, tenants in the manifesto. So the first one is that love is abundant and every relationship is unique. And one of the things that I really love about this concept is that you don't, love is not limited to just one person or one type of relationship. It can be with friendships. It can be with romantic partners. It can be with, um, with family or, you know, whatever type of relationship. And another thing that they say is that um, trust is better and that you need to uh, have love and respect instead of entitlement. So I just wanted to kind of mention that there are concepts that kind of help some structure some of these types of um, guidelines almost to these types of relationships. And not everyone who's polyamorous is a relationship anarchist and not every relationship anarchist is polyamorous, but I wanted to just throw that out there before you answer. Now I'm curious to hear the actual personal response. Well, and thank you for, I mean, your comments are hundred percent on point and in the direction of where I'm thinking. I mean, I, I would sum up my response in a few words, which is that love is not a scarce resource or, you know, like it's love is abundant. Um, now, it, this is very upsetting and I recognize that this is like a, a challenging um is a challenging idea and uh many people just flat out think it's you know they, they don't understand it they can't wrap their heads around it and they, they can't support it and I, I respect that um so I'm not trying to persuade anyone I'm not trying to evangelize but at the same time you know when when asked a question like that I often say okay well you know I, I mean I I can ask you specifically Piali do you have siblings I do, but just one. Oh, okay. Is brother, sister? Sister. Okay. Do you, do you love your sister? I do. do. Do you love your mom? I do. Whoa, whoa, hold up. Hold up. How, how can you love your sister and your mom? Like, I don't understand because you're, you're going to care about one of them, right? You're going to, you're, you know, there's a birthday. Who, who are you going to favor? You know, I mean, what happens if the birthday's on the same day? How are you possibly going to do that? That's impossible, you know? And obviously that's, that level is different because it doesn't um, spill over into romance. But um, what what I feel and what I've found personally is that the difference between a platonic relationship and a romantic relationship is, is far less than we're programmed. Uh, We're, I mean, we're very conditioned. We, we have hundreds, thousands of years of, well, maybe 1500 years of strong programming in Western civilization that effectively says you know, this is what love looks like. This is what romance looks like. It's one, I mean, one man, one woman is what we've been told for a very long time until recently, except for pocket communities. And that's it. Am I absolutely in love with my wife? Yes. When when I see her, she fills me with joy. I love spending time with her. And, you know, particularly I, I have one other partner who um, is just an extremely tender relationship for me. I, I absolutely love her to death. Um, she, we, we have a great, wonderful intimacy. She's actually asexual. <laughs> we, um, I know, uh, but, and we, we have had sex, but not often because she's not often in the mood, but she loves cuddling. We love talking and she's the one that I, I, I can go to for certain types of, you know, re- relationship headspace or just emotional things. She gets me on a level that, frankly, my wife doesn't. And my wife understands, you know, because for a long time I would say, well, I feel this way. And she's like, I just really don't know where you're coming from. And she would struggle to read me. And she saw that I was frustrated and, um, you know, that we weren't able to communicate. And when I met this other this other woman where there was this really, really in, intense uh shorthand almost immediately. And I, I told my wife about it and she was like, I'm so happy you found someone that gets you at that level because she knows that she can't. And that's to say, you know, I'd say my wife and I understand each other like an eight and a half out of 10, which I think is pretty good. 
Um, but you know, this other woman, it's more like a 9.8 out of 10. It's really, really close. And that's a, a really precious thing for the two of us. And, you know, she's, she's a big phone talker and much more of a, like a long distance type of person. So when I'm traveling or whatever, th this other woman is, is, uh, someone that I can really rely on versus my wife is more of an in-person energy type of type of woman. And if I'm gone, I'm a little bit out of sight, out of mind. I know she cares about me, but she also doesn't want to have long phone talks and, uh, you know, versus I have that, um, other emotional need. I, I want to check in with people when I'm on the road. The point being that, you know, the dynamics are different now. The, the question is, you know, when you really fall for someone else, it is normal to think, okay, is this, is this a replacement? Am I, you know, am I swapping out the old for the new? And um, my wife has been unsettled. There've been times where she's like, Hey, you know, you really seem to be hitting it off with so-and-so like, are you, you know, she just like the younger, hotter model, you know, like that you're going to trade me in for. And I'm like, no, 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 no. But, you know, we, we've had to have those conversations and I love that she brings it to me and she brings her concern so that I can reassure her and let her know where I am. And, but we've also agreed that if we came to the space where, you know, it's like, Hey, I would rather be with this person that we would do our best to be open about it. Now that said, when we, um, when we first started talking about our, our relationship being open, we set a bunch of guidelines. They're not rules. I think of the like uh, Jack Sparrow, you know, the pirate code. It's like they're the more guidelines really. But um, but the primary one was that our relationship needs to be protected at all costs. That's something that we want to keep at the front of absolutely everything else. And if anything threatens that, we are not interested in pursuing that path. And that's something that we both agree on. And if we feel the other one is kind of getting dangerously close to that, we call each other out. We say, hey, is this, you know, is our relationship the top priority right now or is it not? Now that said, we're not possessive about it. And we often don't have to invoke that, you know, that principle, but that's something that we do for the two of us. Now, all that said, we have our own dynamic. Like Amber mentioned, many relationship anarchists feel that there should be no hierarchy and that all partners should be considered at equal footing and should find their own dynamic in their unique space. Um, I think that's a beautiful and brilliant thing. Frankly, I mean, my, my wife and I have talked that if we had been poly when we met, we probably would have ended up in a circumstance more like that. But, you know, we have children, we own property, we, you know, have entwined finances and all these things. And not to say that the practicality is more important than the romance or the or the strength of the relationship, but, you know, we care about each other and our children sufficiently that we don't want to jeopardize what we have. And we want to make sure that our children have a stable household and that, you know, we're able to support each other financially and, and give that stability to each other. That's the dynamic we've worked out between the two of us. What I wanted to ask on the back of all that, and you mentioned finances. <laughs> now it's expensive to date. Amber and I have had this conversation before and, you know, who pays and and it all depends on what you do as well. Do you have any mutual understanding of of what you spend on on other people and, and how that side of things work? Yeah. So back to our, our guidelines, <laughs> we, we literally have a shared note where, you know, we have the principles typed up and whenever one of us feels that we should add something or modify something, we, we say, Hey, we let's talk about, you know, we, we schedule a meeting. I mean, when I say schedule a meeting, I say that jokingly, you know, we, we sit down and like, Hey, let's, I, I want to talk about this. Okay. Yeah, let's find some time. Are you good? Yeah. Okay. 
and we, and we bring it up and we talk through it and we've modified it, but the financial side is definitely um, a whole subset of that list. And, you know, we've, we've set specific financial thresholds, you know, like don't go on a date that's more, more than this, or, um, you know, we, we have a principle of like, and it, it sounds terrible, but like no charity cases, you know, like th- there's always someone who's like wonderful that is just completely broken, hopeless, and could really use a lot of financial support. And, I wish we could help everyone at all times, but also if you mix that in with um, romance, it gets really complicated really fast. And so we said, look, you know, these are shared finances. We're not taking that on. We can find other ways to support them or point them towards resources or help them with their resume or, you know, help them look for jobs or other things, but we're not going to be sending money to people. And, you know, especially as a man in the dating world and as a man in my forties, you know, I, I get a fair number of like women in their twenties that are like, they're like, wow, you seem really successful. You know, like I, I, I sure, I sure love gifts. And I'm like, and I, I, usually my, my flat response is, oh, I, I don't do the sugar daddy thing. You know, like if, <laughs> if, if you, if you want to go to lunch, I'm happy to go to lunch. <laughs> That's brilliant. But, yeah. But, but, you know, and then there's the issue of like, okay, who's, you know, do you split the bill? Does, mm. does the man treat, you know, she more often is treated to meals and I more often treat, especially for states to meals. I, I always wish I could have like a two hour conversation with everyone I go out with about, you know, it's like, Hey, do you know, you know, cause there's all, there's all this polling data. If you, um, there's a wonderful podcast called, uh, sex and psychology by Dr. Justin Lemiller, highly recommended. He did a, a whole episode on survey data showing the relationship between expectations for sex and who pays and, you know, like how it divides according to country and ethnic demographic, age demographic, and still, despite all the societal progress and, you know, (laughs) feminist leaning efforts that, that uh, I feel that the, that society has made, you know, something like 80 or 90% of polled people feel that the man should pay for the meal on the first date. And then like 80% or 70% of women, I'm, I'm butchering these numbers. You can get the real thing, but this is the, you know, the, the ballpark, um, roughly 70% of women feel that if the man pays for their meal, that they need to have sex with him. And so it's just such a problematic dynamic. It's like, why are money and sex entwined and like how messed up is that? And obviously there, there's certain, you know, it's kind of like buying an engagement ring. Oh, you're showing that you're financially stable, which shows that you're, you know, like a better, uh, you know, long-term partner and could be better for raising children. But again, it comes down to the same models of kind of like, you know, become baby factories, produce uh, little workers for for capitalism to thrive. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I obviously have semi-Marxist feelings about some of that. So Logan, I think another aspect of having open relationships or polyamorous relationships is that it can really be a way for people to also explore um, their sexuality and their gender identity. And I think that is another reason that a lot of people do it. You've been really kind of talking about it from like just a very sort of um, straight person perspective. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people maybe have a perception that you have to be gay to do that. Mm. And I, I really don't think that that's the case. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about that. There, there's not a whole lot I could say that will not offend uh, people who I care about. So I'm trying to think how to the the swinger types of dynamics, and as mentioned, you know, this it's not my space, and I, I hope I don't pick fights with the swinger community online or whatever. But um, I, I find that a very very common dynamic with couples looking for other couples or couples looking for a third to join them is that the man is straight, the woman is bi, and the woman doesn't feel that she's able to explore relationships or sexuality with another woman. And um, the man often 
I, you know, this is a little bit of surmising on my part, but I've spoken with enough couples that I feel that it's, I, I feel pretty confident in it. Often the man is like specifically into threesome porn and really likes the idea of like a man and two women. And so the man really encourages it and wants to be there. But usually the, the third that comes in doesn't necessarily have interest in the man. I mean, sometimes they do. And when that happens, it's a really wonderful thing, but often, um, I, I feel like it's problematic because the women should just have a chance to explore sexuality with another woman and not worry about how her, you know, whether or not her husband is satisfied or, or you know, her boyfriend or whatever the dynamic is. Now, there's also a strange homophobia within swingers, uh, swinger men specifically, where there will be many men that are very adamant, like, I will not have a foursome if there's a, if the man is bi. Like, like, you know, and I'm like, Hey, do you, do you think that a bi man's just going to just suddenly jump on you if you don't have any interest and you're not, you know, like, come on, man, like <laughs> you're giving yourself too much credit, but uh, you know, this fragile, uh, fragility in their sexuality where they're like, Oh, I don't even know what I do. If a man came after me, it's like, you just say no, you know, <laughs> like you just put up a finger. You just, you know, like, it's not a big deal. And, um, especially most bi men are so, there's so much fear of rejection from other men anyway, because men are so toxic and hostile with each other that bi men are like the most cautious that I've ever seen in terms of approaching another man. So yeah, in terms of the, the poly side of it, you know, I, I have a good friend who, you know, she's very, I, I think of bisexuality as like a spectrum and one is you're fully straight and 10 is you're fully um, gay and like a five is you're fully bi, you know, you're right in the middle and she's she's just a full five. And she, you know, I'd say 50% of the people she dates are men, 50 are women. And she's told me that she really appreciates different things about them. You know, she, uh, obviously all women are different, but there are certain types of dynamics that she finds more common when dating women and having sex with women. And sometimes she just, you know, wants a different type of energy. And so she goes for one of her guy friends and sometimes it's a, a girlfriend and, she has that freedom to to explore. And I think that's a, a pretty common type of dynamic for people that, uh, you know, are in an exploratory phase or just kind of want an extra type of energy in their lives. And they can choose what what balance, you know, whether they, like you said, you know, if they're if it's a woman that's married and wants some extra feminine energy in their lives, great. You know, I have another friend who her it's a man and woman that are married and the woman is uh with a, a trans woman and that's like everything she needs outside of her husband like that and that's it she doesn't date outside it's just those two people I, I think that freedom and being able to find that and that experimentation is is where a lot of the value comes up uh, so logan i'm curious about the whole dating game when you have that stable person at home mm-hmm. so you know, it's quite easy to take things personally if you've been on a on a date, two dates, three dates, and the person doesn't want to see you again. Uh, actually, you decide that you do like them and, and you get those feelings of that urge of wanting to date that person more. Or suddenly they, they ghost you, that person that you've seen quite a few times. Mm-hmm. Do you get that feeling of rejection or those kind of down feelings, even though you have that stable person at home? Yeah, I mean... W- hundred percent. The, the feelings are there. They, they still, you know, they, they still affect us. The, um, the, 
boon that the upside is that I, I feel that I always have people to talk to about it. Now, this is very much true of people who are single and not poly, you know, who are dating and maybe they're, you know, the, the girlfriends are, you know, like, oh yeah, you can tell us about it. And they, you know, there's, there's a group of people that can help share the pain, but I feel that um, specifically, you know, my, my, my wife, when I'm, when something really crappy happens, I, I can tell her about it right off the bat. And, you know, she knows me better than anyone. And she's like, you know, I think you screwed up in this case. You, you, you know, you opened up too fast or you told her too much. I'm like, ah, you're probably right. Or she'll say, no, no, this hundred percent on that other person. Like you're fine. Like she's obviously working through some stuff. It's not, this is not you. And um, that point of validation is, is really priceless. And um, in like manner, you know, she has other points of reference, male and female around her, as do I, who kind of understand this world and some of the unique dating dynamics and um, having those multiple points of contact are helpful. So I, I grew up sailing and a, a big um, a big thing when you sit down in a boat is you always want to have three points of contact. It's like, you know, you have a hand and your foot and you sit down or you want to have like your butt and two feet or two hands and one foot, but you always have three points yeah. of contact. And, yeah. and I kind of, I kind of feel that that, you know, relationship wise, that stability, it, it, it helps to protect you from when those waves hit or, you know, a gust of wind comes or someone knocks the tiller to the side. Um, yeah. If it were just one person that, you know, like you're much more vulnerable and um, it's harder to, and obviously this doesn't have to do necessarily with polyamory, it's just relationships in general, I think. Yeah, thanks for that. That's um, that's really interesting. Uh, one more question. Sorry, I could just talk to you all day long, but I I promise just one more question. Okay. Uh, so I was quite surprised to hear that uh, you're married. Mm -hmm. um, so I would like to know, I guess, what does the institution of marriage mean to you? That that's not an easy question to answer, and you know, I think I mentioned a little bit of this before had we met having discovered polyamory and understood what we understand now, I don't know what our relationship would have looked like. I think we would have um, still come together in some way or another. I don't know if we would have been married and I don't know that I would seek out marriage. Um, and we're open with our kids about this. We also don't know if we would have had kids <laughs> or as many kids really? as we had. Yeah. I mean, we, we love them, but, but, you know, specifically my wife um, doesn't feel that she's really suited to being a, a mom. She struggles. And I, I'm a very paternal, like I, I like to, I'm a nurturing person. And I, so I, I love the kids, but she, you know, especially through the younger years with nursing and, and all this stuff, you know, I mean, I, I would do what I could to take the, you know, to, to feed the babies when we would use bottles or other things, but it's just, obviously it's so much, so much of a unbalanced burden on, on the woman in a relationship, even if the best intentions are in place it's difficult to look back and say, well, had I known X at this point in my life, what decisions would I have made? And those are very interesting scenarios that are, you know, largely academic or, you know, just completely um, uh, hypothetical marriage to me today. who this is, this is like the least romantic thing I, I've said in a while. I, th this is probably going to be an evolving point of view throughout my life, but I, I think that it uh, is great because it allows financial <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, financial benefits. We're able to be on healthcare together. Um, we're able to get some tax refunds. And there's a shorthand when, you know, we say, yeah, we have kids and my husband or my wife, you know, my spouse, and people understand. I think that if the world were different, 
it would it would mean different things. You know, like I, I would love for um, some of those financial perks to be available to people who are living life together and working together, whether or not they have like a signed piece of paper from the courthouse. Um, you know, the what does marriage mean to a person? I mean, to, to us, we we're we're absolutely, you know, we're we're partners in crime and in everything. We support each other and we are involved in so many different areas of, our, of each other's lives in wonderful ways. Um, but, you know, we also all know people that are married that just, they, they trash talk their spouse and they, you know, they're miserable and um, there's abuse and all sorts of unhealthy and toxic dynamics. And I'm not going to say that, you know, their marriages are invalid or that they're bad, but I just, I, I don't know what marriage means today. And I know that if you speak to many like traditional fundamentalist religious types, they'll they'll rightfully argue that you know marriage is a sacred and strong institution that is benefits our society and i agree but also i think that it has to be a healthy marriage and i think that when all of the emphasis goes towards marriage i mean i, I came from a conservative religious uh upbringing and all the focus was you know like you, you just marry and that's it and and that's the only place to go and so yeah. it's a very all or nothing um, type of mentality. And yes, people make it work, but often they're miserable and often they have to kill off and shut off big parts of their personality and their desires in order to, to make this thing work and they suffer. And is the suffering worth it? In some cases, yes. I mean, is it worth it to suffer for children for the next generation? Is it worth it to suffer for someone else in a positive way? Like is sacrifice important? Absolutely. Is it worth it to sacrifice your mental health for an abuser? Is it worth it to sacrifice for someone that doesn't care about you? No, um, but they're still married. So, you know, I, I can't give a carte blanche to marriage and just say, oh yeah, it's the better way. Cause I, I really don't feel that way. I think that as, and as non-romantic as this sounds, but as things like tax codes and laws, um, you know, healthcare approaches catch up with, what people in today's world are doing will be in a, a space where men and women have more freedom to to find dynamics that are healthy for them that help them thrive and they don't have to be as concerned about things like finances or you know where am i gonna um you know how am i gonna pay for my next doctor's visit and i know that that last point is pretty much only relevant in the united states because we're terrible but yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know i think that's such a great point you're making. And Piala, you and I have talked a lot about this is that a lot of, you know, people think that marriage is the conclusion and then you live happily ever after. And that's, that's not the case just because someone is married doesn't mean they're in a healthy relationship, that they're supported, that they have a good partnership, that they're happy. And I think that th that's why this whole, all these concepts we're talking about, you know, you're making a really compelling case, Logan, you know, your relationship with your wife just sounds like such a amazing partnership, you know, so communicative, um, based on so much trust that I think it's just another way for people to think about how we connect with each other as humans. Logan, thank you so much. This has been such a fascinating topic. So happy to have you on the podcast today. I, I appreciate the chance to to discuss. I mean, there's some difficult topics and I, I, uh, I appreciate the, the hard questions. Thank you so much, Logan. Honestly, I, I consider myself uneducated in this area. So it's been really enlightening for me. And listeners, if you're interested in learning more about what we've talked about today, there's a couple of resources we mentioned, and I'll put them in the show notes. So the book Sex at Dawn, 
the book called Open, which is a memoir by Rachel Krantz. There's a really great podcast called Better in Bed, where they explore a lot of the topics that we've talked about today. And then Logan, you referenced a podcast, Sex and Psychology. So I'll put all of those in the show notes. And if you are also interested in how do you get into this lifestyle, there are specific dating apps around the lifestyle. The one that's most common is Field, F-E-E-L-D. So that's something to explore and look at if you're interested in learning more. So thanks again. And to find out more, please visit us on inspirationroompodcast.com or you can find us on Instagram on Inspiration Room Podcast. If you'd like to share an inspirational story, please email us on inspirationroompodcast at gmail.com. Thanks very much and look forward to seeing you all next time.